For those of you who are visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're starting verse 17 for today. And no, this isn't the second sermon in the series or even the third. It is much later down the road, but that's all right. We're working our way slow, but sure. So again, that's 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read from that in just a moment. Uh, While you're flipping there, how do you tell the difference between irrational fear and healthy fear. I'm going to use a, a story to illustrate this. Years ago, I went on a vacation with my family to the beach. And as we normally did on those beach trips, we rented bikes for the week so we could cruise around the island. And one afternoon, a group of us, siblings, cousins, some parents, we went and explored the nearby neighborhoods. And we found a bridge over a tidal creek with a site that made us stop. Below us in the water, maybe six, eight feet down below us, there were dozens of alligators just swarming, ranging from tiny foot-long alligators to like up to about maybe seven, eight feet, just monsters. So they're swimming around, they're bumping into each other, and some are even fighting. It's a very interesting sight to behold. But knowing that alligators can bite, we didn't go down and try to pet them. We stayed on the bridge and we looked at them from above. Well, one adult family member who will remain nameless panicked. So I looked up just in time to see this adult running for her life, jumping on her bike, trying desperately to get the pedals going and hightailing it out of there. To this day, I have never seen her move that quickly. And as the rest of us watched her disappear into the distance, we absolutely lost it. So to this day, I still vividly remember that scene. That's one of my all-time favorite memories. But in that story, there were two different kinds of fear on display. One was a healthy fear or respect for a dangerous animal. The other was an irrational fear that those alligators were suddenly going to look at us, climb up the eight-foot bank, the vertical drop-off, and eat us all. So you see, not all fear is equal or motivated by the same things. So in Scripture, we see commands everywhere not to fear. But there's also commands in Scripture everywhere to fear. Well, does that mean Scripture contradicts itself? No, because the type of fear makes a big difference. And what we'll see this morning is that we are commanded to have a certain fear for God. So the task for us, the task looking into this text, will be to determine what kind of fear it is that we need to have for the Lord. So for now, we need to know, though, that the message of this text that we're about to read is to fear God because he is a just judge. Fear God because he is a just judge. So with that, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord God, through this text this morning, teach us what it means to fear you in the right way. Not in a way of dread or in a way of terror, 
in a way that honors you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Peter begins this section of the text in verse 17 with an if-then conditional clause. So the if is whether or not you call on the Father. So are you truly trusting in Christ? Do you openly profess faith in God? Because to call upon God's name is not just to use his name. Calling on God is not just a nominal profession of faith. To call on God is to invoke his help. This has to be a prayerful attitude, a meditative attitude to the Lord. An attitude that seeks to follow the Lord in your life. A life lived out by faith. It is a statement of faith and commitment. We can summarize this idea with the phrase, walking by faith. So if you are humbly walking with God and depending upon Him alone for your salvation, then you can call upon the Father. And if you call upon the Father, then the if condition has been met. That means we can move on to the then statement. So if you call upon the Father, then you must conduct yourselves with fear. Our lives have to be characterized by some sort of fear. And that may sound strange. But Peter says that during our entire exile, we have to live in fear. So that means our entire lives on this earth must follow this command. The question now is what Peter means by the word fear. Well, verses 18 through 21 will build on and explain how it is that we conduct ourselves with fear. For now, you need to know that it's not the kind of fear we often think of. It's, if it were, then Peter would actually be contradicting, contradicting other points of Scripture. 1 John 4.18 says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So a dreadful fear of punishment is not in keeping with a life of faith. If you are walking by faith, then you cannot live in that kind of fear. And that means we have two options for what Peter means here. Either he is wrong, or fear means something else. This is why understanding the context of the passage is so important. Different writers in Scripture use different words differently. Even the same writers will use the same word in multiple ways. The word for fear here is the same word used further on in the book. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, it says this. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, that same word, honor the emperor, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Fear and respect there are the same word. Then in 1 Peter chapter 3, likewise wives be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful there is the same fear word. And then lastly, in chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the fear we're talking about is very close to respect. Peter is ordering us to have a reverential awe for God. If children should respect their parents, wives their husbands, servants their masters, and we should be respectful to all, 
how much more should we seek to show reverence and respect to the Lord? That's why I titled this sermon, An Awful Fear. It's not a terrible fear, but a reverential fear that is full of awe. And that's really the normal, the traditional definition of awful, to be full of awe. Because our God is full of awe and majesty. And Peter is concerned that we recognize and live accordingly. Now we can build on how it is that we conduct ourselves with fear. So the first point, and by far the longest point, I'll just warn you ahead of time, it's way longer than the other two. Uh, So this is the first point. Fear God because he paid your ransom. Because he paid your ransom. Looking at verses 18 and 19 here. So one thing we haven't discussed yet in verse 17 is the side note that Peter added about the father as a judge. The Lord is the judge of all mankind. He renders to each man and woman according to their deeds. He's the great creator of all things. He is perfectly holy and perfectly just. And as such, he is the only one worthy. He is the only possible judge of mankind. The scripture tells us that God will judge through Christ. Acts 17.31 He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He will judge according to the works of mankind. Everything we have ever done will be brought to that great trial. And Christ, the judge of all, will be the judge of all as the one whom God has appointed. Then Ecclesiastes 12.14 Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And there are no exceptions to this truth. We will all stand before Christ. And there, and here we see the connection between fearing God and obedience as well. Our duty as human beings is to obey and to follow God. So whether believer or unbeliever, we will all have to answer to God. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10 It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the question on that day, the question when we stand before the judge is who can endure the wrath of a just and holy God? And as verse 17 tells us, the Lord judges impartially. The powerful will not be better off. The rich will not be excused. The poor and the weak will not be let off. There will only be two categories on the last day. The first group will be those who are condemned to hell forever for their sin. And the second group will be entirely deserving of hell, and yet they will enter into glory instead. They will be able to do so, though, only through the blood of Christ. His perfect sacrifice and righteousness will be credited to their account, and therefore they will be blameless and righteous before the judge. Even their imperfect works will be cleansed and offered as holy and complete works through Christ. This is the first of many reasons to fear the Lord in this text. Jesus rescued us from slavery and condemnation. We were trapped in the chains of this world. We were completely guilty and worthy of nothing but hell. There was nothing that we could have done on our own to pay those debts. As Ephesians 2 tells us, we were children of wrath and we were dead in our sins. There was nothing that we could have done to awaken our dead hearts or to rescue ourselves. We were completely and totally enslaved to our sin and to the world. And the worst part about it is that that's where we wanted to be. 
The dead heart revels in sin and rebellion. The unregenerate heart is a pit of hatred and of death. Rebellion to God is the theme of the wicked song. There was no way to rescue ourselves, and yet we were set free. There is nothing we could have done to change our hearts, and yet we were made alive. So how is it that wretches like us could be reconciled to a holy God? What has enabled and enacted this fundamental change in our very beings, in the core of our beings? What is it that transformed the very heart of our beings from God-haters to God-lovers? But the Lord is truly impartial and judges all of our deeds, even what we consider our secret sins, how could he declare us as righteous? A debt had to be paid for our sin. Blood had to be spilled in order to achieve this. As Scripture tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Peter goes on about our past state. He describes it as the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. The oddity here is that in Hellenistic culture, the, the culture of the day, this phrase, inherited from your fathers, was only used in good ways normally. This phrase normally described cherished traditions that were passed along from father to son. They were the things Greeks considered to be the core of a good society. The inherited things were vibrant cultural treasures. In the eyes of the world, these were amazing things. But for all their high society and culture, they were lacking the only thing that truly mattered. Because they did not have Christ. And that is why, even though they seemed great to the world, Peter says they were futile. They were futile ways. They served no good purpose. The treasures, the treasures inherited were really just extra layers of chains on their hearts. And these treasures could have been heirlooms, riches, status, philosophy, or even religious fervor for their false gods. And yet our past is not any different, nor is the world today. If you came to faith later in life, consider the things that you once treasured. Did you once love and serve riches, partying, or really more specifically, did you once love yourself more than anything else? And if you don't remember that time, think of what our culture holds dear. Consumerism. Political power, land, freedom, and the current cultural values all fall into this same category. Subjective truth, intersectionality, critical theory, gender confusion, and individualism. These are the honored traditions of the day, the things inherited. Yet it's not just the individual sins, but it's also the underlying sinful life worldview. Even the framework for seeing the world is corrupted and poisoned in the unbeliever. And in the end, the worship of self and sin, it will destroy completely. These are the treasures that we inherited from the world. But it is also from these things that Peter tells us that we have been ransomed. Now, that word can also mean redeemed. In the Old Testament, the concept of being freed from slavery is a major theme. Because of Adam and Eve's first sin, all of mankind became enslaved to sin and death. But right away, God gives a promise in Genesis 3.15. He gives the promise of a redeemer. But then Israel becomes slaves in Egypt. But God redeemed them and brought them out in the Exodus. The Psalms speak of God ransoming and redeeming individuals from their sin and from their enemies. Isaiah tells us that when God exiled Israel for their sin and rebellion, he ransomed them to bring them back into Canaan again. 
And so part of what Peter is referencing is the Old Testament themes that were already known by his readers. They understood the concept of a ransom. But this idea of ransoming also had connections to the culture of the Gentiles who were reading this letter. The Greco-Roman world of the New Testament had a standard method, a normal practice for freeing slaves. The one purchasing the slave's freedom would take the necessary amount of gold or silver to a pagan temple. The redeemer would then offer the money to a god or goddess in the temple. And once the money was received, the slave was said to be freed by that god or goddess. So really what you see is whether it's Jews reading this or Gentiles, Peter's readers understood something about this concept. A ransom is a price paid to free a slave from bondage. In other words, to summarize, you were redeemed for a price. You were freed from sin and slavery. You were free from the world's misguided, inherited traditions and pagan gods. You were even freed from your own sinful heart and its consequences. So what is it that had the power to ransom us or to redeem us? It was not money paid to a false god. No amount of money could appease the wrath of God. There's not enough power in all creation to undo the judgment due for your sin. The vastness of the heavens and the power of the stars are as nothing compared to the penalty that you would owe. As far as the east is from the west, so is the extent of the condemnation your sin demands. You were ransomed, but it was not with silver or gold. You needed something far more precious and far more powerful. You needed a ransom that is pure and holy. You needed a ransom that was beyond all worth, human calculation, or understanding. You need someone whose power surpasses and subdues the furthest reaches of the universe. And only one is worthy and able to do this. Only one thing can cover the multitude of your transgressions against the holy God. You need the precious blood of Christ. And the reason the blood of Christ is so precious is because of who he is. Christ is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh. His perfection, innocence, and purity display riches beyond calculation. The infinite nature of his deity means the power of his sacrificial blood is also infinite. The blood of Christ is so perfectly sufficient to save all mankind and more, if God willed it. His sacrifice was so flawless and powerful that it can never fail to secure the salvation for those who have been called by God. Now, Scripture teaches what theology calls a limited atonement. And the limit is on the number of persons that God has called to be saved by Jesus' blood. The limit is not on the power of Christ's blood. The power and the efficacy of Christ's blood knows no limit. But it is only applied to those whom God has called. Now, some don't like this doctrine and they like to argue for total free will to choose God for all. But the irony is that to believe that, it is purely up to man to choose God is to limit the power of the atonement. To do so limits the value of Christ's blood. Because the precious blood of Christ is not just what saves you once you believe, but what allowed you to believe in the first place. His blood is fully sufficient for the sins of all his people. And we see more of that truth when we consider the imagery of a lamb without blemish or spot that Peter talks about. Throughout the Old Testament, God was training his people to understand redemption and who the Messiah would be. So if we had the time, we could walk through those kind of passages for hours. But for now, we can just consider three things. 
First, before God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he told them to celebrate the Passover. Israel was to take a lamb without blemish or spot, as in pure, and put its blood on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass by. They would be saved from death by the blood of the lamb. All who were within the household were saved by the lamb's blood. Second, the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, operated in a similar way. Sacrifices had to be from lambs without spot or without blemish. All of Leviticus is concerned with this holiness and purity, most of which is centered around a spotless and a blemished lamb, unblemished lamb. And the third thing to note is that the prophet Isaiah connected the need for cleansing by blood sacrifices with the promised Messiah to come. So listen to Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can recount his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgressions of my people. And in those three topics, we learn several things. The blood of the Lamb protects us from the destroyer and his judgment. His blood covering us and his name on our foreheads will keep us from hell. To be a spiritual member of the house of God is to be covered by the blood of Christ. His blood is totally sufficient in a way that the Old Testament sacrifices never could be. And as Isaiah 53 passage told us, Jesus was stricken for our sin. The blood of the Lamb is the perfect and the only ransom. Jesus is that unblemished and spotless Lamb. And here we see a beautiful truth. The same God who is judge has also provided a ransom to redeem us from condemnation. Christ became the curse for you. His body was broken and his blood poured out on your account that you might be ransomed from all the worthless things you once reveled in. You have to know and to understand how you have been ransomed and from what. If you do not understand this, then you will not revere God as you should. You will not care about holy living. So knowing all of these things, marvel at the grand redemption which has been brought to you. Fear the Lord because he has ransomed you. So the second and much shorter point is fear God because he planned your ransom. So he provided your ransom and now he planned your ransom. So there's a military saying that no plan survives contact with the enemy. And this phrase comes from a much lengthier version of what a Prussian general named Helmut von Moltke, I'm sure I mispronounced that, of what he once wrote. It's been paraphrased and it's been edited again and again into various books and sayings for the last century. But the idea in every form is the same. Having a good or having a plan is a good thing. But once the battle gets going, plans need to change. Another way of saying the same thing is that nothing ever goes perfectly to plan. And for fallen humans in a fallen world, that is absolutely correct. We should plan, but we should also expect our plans to fall apart and to be ready to change our plans at a moment's notice. But when it comes to God's plans for our redemption, nothing could be further from the truth. Peter wants to assure us that the ransom Christ paid for us was planned and executed perfectly. Verse 20 begins by telling us that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The plan of redemption was not an afterthought or a solution arrived at after the fall. God knows all that will come to pass, but it's even more than that, because foreknowledge is more than just foreknowing. 
in the sense of knowing what's going to happen. Foreknowledge means that God planned and ordained everything that comes to pass. Peter tells us that our redemption was ordained before the foundations of the universe were ever set. So before there was time, before there was a star in the sky, long before any plant, animal, or human was formed from the dust, there was God. The perfect trinity not only existed, but is the definition of existence itself. God is because he is. So outside of time and physical space, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was, is, and forever will be the Holy Trinity. The Son has always been, but at one point in time, He took on flesh and entered into His creation. And that was, is what was foreknown before God created the world. He knew He would create the universe and place man in it. He knew that Adam would fail and plunge mankind into sin and misery. But the persons of the Trinity also agreed and ordained a plan of redemption in eternity. It's what we call the covenant of redemption. It was a plan from before the beginning of time that Christ would go to the cross for you. The Son of God was declared as the ransom before time began. He was foreknown before the bones of creation were ever formed. Really, the scope of this topic is so large that it can be easy to doubt. How do we know things really worked out the way God ordained them? What if none of this is true? Well, God did not leave us without his testimony. He has given us the details of his plan throughout time, throughout the history of creation. The amazing beauty and glory of his word is that it all fits together and it shows itself genuine just as God is truthful. Peter summarizes the witness of the Bible by telling us that Christ has been made manifest. Jesus has been revealed or made visible to us in these last days. So when the Son of God came to earth as a man, he became the full manifestation of God to us. He became truly present in bodily form among his creation. God, the invisible God who has never been seen, was made visible in the person of Christ. There's a double impact in that statement. First, the invisible God became visible to the world. And second, the spiritual promise of a coming, coming Messiah became a reality in time and in space. So when, in Christ, we see the, the full fulfillment and promise of the name Emmanuel, God with us. So everything that was promised in the Word of God in the form of the Old Testament was made a reality in the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And this full manifestation of the plan of God in Jesus has been revealed in the last times. Let's talk about last times for a moment. So often people think of the last times as the last few days before Christ returns. And while the time right before Christ returns is definitely part of this category, it's far broader than that. If last times referred only to the very end of time, those last few days, then Christ's manifestation would not have been for the sake of Peter's readers. But if you look at verse 20, the manifestation of Christ was for their sake. Not only that, the manifestation of Christ is for your good now, 2,000 years later. So as Dr. Mike Kruger likes to say, Peter is not concerned with the quantity of the last times, but the quality of them. So it's not about how close we are to the end, but that Christ has already come as our ransom and paid the price that our sins deserve. There is no other major biblical event that is required before Christ returns. Otherwise, Jesus, Jesus would not have warned us to be ready at all times 
and in every moment to meet him. So whether it's 10,000 more years or 10 more seconds, this is the last age of human history. We are in the grand finale of time on this earth, which is the church age. Christ is conquering through his church and preparing her for the marriage of the Feast of the Lamb. So we have the Old Testament promises of the Messiah and the fulfillment of those promises in Christ, which the New Testament records. And this is what Peter means, that Christ was both foreknown before time and that he appeared in the last days for your sake. And God has done all of this that you might see and rejoice in his plan. He did all of this that you might believe and fear him. I'll tell you to consider the full scope of God's redemptive plans, but to be honest, our minds are incapable of doing that. But try hard to stop and think about the depths of wisdom required for this plan. Meditate on the holiness and justice of God and always performing perfect justice. But also recognize his mercy and grace that he would send his son to pay the penalty that you could not. Holiness cannot let sin go. Justice demands judgment. And so the wrath of God did fall, but it fell on Christ, just as the Trinity had agreed and ordained before time began. Behold the mercy of God in Christ. God is so big, so grand, so beyond understanding that human words fall far short of explaining the grandeur and majesty of his name. I believe that's what led David to write in Psalm 139. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So if David was in fear of how his own body and soul were made, how much more was he in fear of the one who fashioned that body and soul? We focus on the grandness of our salvation, and well, we should. But the infinite God is far greater and more powerful than even redemption can display. This perfect and infinite God is the one who planned your ransom from all eternity past. Fear the Lord because he planned your redemption. To the final and shortest point, fear God because he did it all for you. He did it all for you. So the same God that foreknew Jesus and sent him as a ransom as the one who ordained everything necessary for your salvation. God has done everything needed to ransom you so that you would believe in him, the perfect father. At the very end of verse 20, Peter says that Christ was foreknown and manifested for your sake. So despite your sin and failure, God worked to redeem you. The covenant of redemption and the incarnation of Christ were ordained for your sake. Christ's death did not take place in a vacuum. Jesus' death was not just an example of a sacrifice, as some like to claim. The Trinity orchestrated a grand plan to ransom you from bondage to sin and death and then accomplished that mission. God brought you to a state of belief. And that's what verse 21 tells us. Jesus did everything for your sake that you might believe through him. On account of his work as our great high priest, we have faith. And that's really an incredible mystery. The God of the universe moved mountains so that you could believe. And if we had any doubts about the truthfulness or power of God, Peter even gives us proof. We can be sure that we have truly been ransomed. And the proof is that Christ sits on the throne of the universe victorious. You should be confident because Christ was raised 
from the dead. The grave could not hold the Son of God, so he rose up in power. Furthermore, the Father rewarded the Son and glorified him for his sacrificial work. Had Jesus' death or, or life been lacking in any way, he would still be in the grave. But instead, he is risen and he is glorified. And so you have every confidence to believe in God. And that is why Peter says, so that your faith and hope are in God. So that is giving the necessary results of these truths. Because of all these truths we've already talked about, the end result must be faith and hope. Our faith must rest in Christ, the one whose precious blood is fully sufficient to cover our sins. You must believe in God because the one who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead and give him glory will also raise you from the dead and glorify you one day. And this is the thing in which we must hope. We have to hold hope in our hearts as something of inestimable worth because it has been bought and assured with the blood of infinite worth. Peter has been continually building on this theme of hope throughout this chapter. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we were born again to a living hope, guaranteed through Christ, and we were richly endowed with an eternal inheritance. Then in verse 13, Peter commanded us to set our hope fully on the return of Christ. And now at the conclusion of verse 21, Peter tells you that the purpose of fearing God is that your faith and hope might be in the God of your salvation. But just consider for a moment how radical this whole concept is. The infinite God of all creation has orchestrated all of this for your sake, also that you might believe in him. Now, if we did not have a category for fear of the Lord, then this might lead us to believe there was something good in us. Surely we're worthy of this salvation if God did it all for us. We must be better or better than other sinners in some way. Maybe we're smarter or kinder or stronger. Maybe God looked into the future and saw we would be better believers. No. God did not just foreknow and choose us on account of foreknowledge. He chose us for his own reasons, out of his own good pleasure, and for his own glory. There is nothing in us that could warrant the amazing gift of grace we see in Christ's ransom. The fear of the holy God is what teaches us that perspective and humility in our salvation. For you, sinful Fallen, incomplete, and totally unworthy of redemption, God gave up His only Son. For His own glory, and out of a love for His people, God chose to pour out His grace and His mercy on sinners. And He did all of this so that you might be His. Who is worthy of this salvation on His own? Who could possibly understand the infinite wisdom and grace in God's redemptive plan? Who can even begin to understand the intricacies of his redemptive plan? We cannot begin to unravel the mysteries of the gospel. And that's just what has been revealed to us. Not even the angels in glory can understand God's plans, and yet they long to stare into the marvel, the marvels of the gospel. They want to see the riches of God through the gospel. And if no one can understand the plans of God, how are they to understand his infinite nature? Well, it cannot be done. He who is worthy, open the scroll and read it. There is but one who is worthy. Only Christ is worthy of these things. So fear the Lord, because he did it all for your sake. Let's conclude. We began with the proposition that 
We need to fear the Lord because he is a just judge. We then walk through three points. We must fear God because he paid your ransom, planned your ransom, and he did it all for you. The fear of the Lord is a complex, complex subject which we have really only scratched the surface of this morning. But here's the key to understanding how to grasp the fear of the Lord. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Because if not, then you should be trembling with fear. Because there is a just judge who, will, who you will one day have to stand before. And there will be no excuse. There will be no way out. And nothing left out of the charges. No sins will be let go or ignored. Even the sins you didn't realize you ever committed will be laid before the judge. If you do not believe in Christ you have, and you have a dread and terror at the coming judgment, good. You should. Those alligators, they couldn't get up the bank to us, but no cliff in all creation can protect you from the final judgment. Fear of condemnation outside of Christ is not an irrational fear, but an understanding of God's justice. But you also don't have to stay in that category of the damned. Instead, allow that fear to drive you to Christ in repentance that you might beg for mercy. Jesus will hear and he will forgive. Only then will you experience the perfect love that casts out all fear. Only then will you fear the Lord in the right way. Not with a sense of terror or of dread, but with respect and with reverence. The fear of the Lord is good and holy. It drives us on in holiness and right living now. But most of all, it is the only proper response to an infinite and holy God. Fear God because according to his ordained plan, he sent his only son into the world in order to save sinners like you. Fear the Lord because he is just, holy, and good. Fear the Lord and your faith and your hope in Christ will be complete. Amen.